there's about eight ways that that could have gone, and that was probably the most PG. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. That's yep. right. Proud of us. That's right. Hello and welcome to Let's Make Mistakes, a podcast about design, tech, culture, the internet, and being salty about all of those things. Liam, it's my pleasure to be here. Today Gosh. on the show, we have one Alan Cooper, co-founder of uh, Cooper Interactive Design Agency here in San Francisco and as well as some other places, I believe. Is that correct? When we first started, it was back when dinosaurs roamed the earth. We mm -hmm. actually were started in my home office in Menlo Park. And when our first employee showed up on Monday morning, we went, oh, shit. And we have to do something. So we... We rented an office and then we, that only lasted for a year. Then we rented a bigger office in Palo Alto. We were about a block away from Stanford University. We were there for nine years. And then the siren song of San Francisco. Actually, what happened is after the dot-com implosion, the rents were so cheap in San Francisco, we said we could no longer ignore that place, even though San Francisco was clearly not a part of Silicon Valley at the time. We said, what the hell, and we moved up here. So we've been here for 15 years give or take a year. Yes, we're celebrating our 25th anniversary this year, Cooper. Congrats. Congrats. Thank wow. you. 25. Thank you. That's that's the silver. It's the yes. silver anniversary. We're, yes, we're old. But we're young at heart. I'm covered with tattoos and rings through my nose and various other places and and It's uh, true. You can't tell that very long hair. looking than me. <laughs> and <laughs> So uh Thank you for being on the show today, Alan. Mike, it's a pleasure. It's always a pleasure to see you. You know, I, um, yeah, yeah, you, you, we, we kind of think alike. We're, we're old. On a, we're on it. We're old. No, we're but old. We, we, what we understand is that, is that most edifices are actually just loose piles of rock and can be kicked to the ground and should be kicked to the ground. Absolutely. What are you currently trying to kick to the ground? What's your latest edifice? Well, as of uh, November 9th of last year, I'm trying to restore the United States to a representative democracy. And uh, uh, I'll let you know how that's going. It's a noble pursuit. <laughs> yeah, it yeah. Is. needs to be done. What can I say? I mean, the, the drama that's unfolding, I think, is going is, is gonna to be in a historical chronology is going to be quick, but I think that the it's going to take a long time to undo the damage very much like, let's say the industrial revolution and what it's done to our environment, our climate is, you know, it took a couple hundred years to wreck it and uh, it's going to take a much longer time to put it to rights. Do you think we can put it to rights? Yeah, I do. I woke up this morning to uh and and this was weird because usually I you know I wake up in the morning and there's nothing but good news. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But this morning I woke up to uh an alert about a chunk of Antarctica the size of Delaware which you know smallest state but still when you think about it like you don't want the state of Delaware showing up at your house unannounced. Not in particular. No, it's still pretty big. Yeah, I don't know. If it's frozen, it could help. It was on Father's Day a couple of weeks ago. It was so hot, my neighbor... I mean, I had two chickens die from the heat. You, my we neighbor, might want a little context. My neighbor lost a thousand chickens from oh the my heat. God. We definitely need context now. Yeah, he needs a Delaware vice. I live on a ranch in 
Paranuma, about an hour north of here. And uh, I'm, you know, a suburban kid. I grew up in the burbs. I was born in San Francisco, actually, in San, right here in our lovely city. And uh, but I grew up in the burbs, and I know nothing about the country, and know nothing about farming or ranching, and and uh, I bought some space. And it's seriously out in the sticks, you know, where my neighbors are really are they're cowboys, they're real cowboys, they're real ranchers, they're real farmers. And all of a sudden I've been thrust into this world. And um, I love being able to immerse myself in a new world using my my greatest, most powerful tool, which is my vast well of ignorance. And in this case, it was vast indeed. And, uh, and it's really interesting to see the drama of American agriculture, the forces of the old, the forces of the new, and the forces of the greed. So this is a working farm. Oh, yeah. Oh, what drew you to building out a ranch and moving out to the sticks and getting chickens? Model railroading. Go oh. on. That makes a lot of sense to me. That makes a lot of sense. You need a lot of room if you're going to really get into model railroading. You don't want to run out. That is precisely and exactly the point. H-O or double O? See, this was my next question. H-O. Okay. So, and my knowledge of model railroading is done. Yeah, same. Tapped out. Model railroading is one of those absolutely amazing hobbies where it's a hobby of remarkable breadth. And at its heart is, yes, it's toy trains. But you can approach that from a million different points of view. And it was very much for me running a world in miniature. But what really got me excited about it was, is it's a very complex system that involves lots of moving parts. And I love complex systems with lots of moving parts. And, and, and it's, a, it's a simulation and it's, a, it's like a giant mechanism. But what's really fun is to do it where you don't just make up rules, but, but you take some externally imposed rules. And that, of course, gives you great creativity. So it became a historical recreation project. And so I decided to model a real railroad, the New York, Chicago, and St. Louis Railroad, otherwise known as the Nickel Plate Railroad, which hasn't existed for 50 years. Uh, and I wanted to model it in the year 1949, which was part of its, I would say, its heyday. In And it ran from uh, Chicago to Buffalo. And I wanted to model a, about a hundred mile section of it that ran through uh, Indiana and parts of Ohio. I was right centered around, say, Muncie, Indiana, a, a great bustling metropolis in the center of the country. <laughs> Indeed. And so I used to spend lots of time going on historical hegiras to middle America. And you'd find me in the bad parts of town with a camera and hanging out in the basements of libraries, looking through old microfiche for interesting photographs of, for example, uh, outside of Muncie, there was, there was this huge rock wool mine and factory and they made rock wool insulation, which of course was asbestos. And uh, there's no trace of it anymore. It's, you could sort of see where the rails ran and there's some crumbling pieces of concrete, but it used to be an enormous industry back in the 1930s and forties. And so anyway, so I wanted to build a, essentially a miniature replica of the middle division of the Nickel Plate Railroad in 1949. And then you invite a bunch of your friends over and you operate it like the real thing. So if, if a car were to go from Peoria to Buffalo, you would route it the proper way so it would get from Peoria to Buffalo. 
And so it was really interesting. You'd, you'd use the, the exact same the schedule that the railroad actually published in 1949. You'd operate the model trains on that scale. So of course you need room to do this. I lived in this nice house in, in uh, Portola Valley. I had three and a half acres of land and I wanted to build a building in the backyard big enough to house my vision of a world's great model railroad. And my neighbors fought me on it, even though I couldn't actually see my neighbors. <laughs> they still had a, they still took umbrage. They still took umbrage. Yes. Because it, the, the, it was an old neighborhood that had been taken over by the nouveau riche, the lawyers and the banksters of the parasites of Silicon Valley. And they did not like, you know, a creative wacky guy like me. So it was a four year long battle. And, and, and finally, at the end of it, my wife and I both decided it's time to move. And I said, honey, I want to buy a place where I have enough room that I can set off a stick of dynamite without anybody caring. That's a good life goal. <laughs> I got to say, it sure is. So we ended up finding this 50-acre uh, former dairy farm in West Petaluma. It's about five miles outside of town. It's in the rolling hill country of uh, riparian woodland and pasture land. Cows have been grazing there. It used to be filled with dairies. They're all gone now because the, the dairy business has been killed by the factory milk business. But there's this central area, the ranch now I call Dynamite Valley. But the model trains, you might ask. It, it turns out that I have a 40-foot-long sea container filled with box after box of all my model railroad stuff. I have a lot of it, but I now do scenery construction with a tractor instead of with tweezers. Wait a and, minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. So the model railroad never got built? No, never got built. I mean, it's still, I, I'm, I mean, I hesitate to, to put it all on eBay and sell it. <laughs> well, you can't do that. This I is, could. This is the story of my life in macrocosm. I have to say. We have to build this model railroad. <laughs> what are you guys up to this weekend? Building a well, model that's railroad. The thing. <laughs> building a model railroad of this level of complexity is a, is a life project. And I, I'm kind of, you have no idea how busy I am doing stuff. I'm kind of going, okay, to build this, I have to start by adding a second story to my workshop and then and going from there. I mean, it, it's really, it's a huge job. I, I think I'm misunderstanding scale. When I was thinking model railroad, I was thinking little, you know, tiny, tiny trains. Yeah. Um, but you're using a tractor. Like, what is the size well, of this train? Well, the the thing is, is that is that the reason the reason why one wants to build a model railroad is because one wants to build complex systems and sculpt the hills. Yeah, which is what you do with plaster and tweezers, master and of master of everything he he right. sees. Well, now, so. Instead of putting in an electrical system of 12 volts to run my model trains, uh, two years ago, I put in an electrical system to bring 220 volts to all of my seven barns. So basically, I'm doing it all in 12 inch to the foot scale. So one of the things that I was looking for to acquire was, um, was a vintage fire engine for my model railroad because fire engines are just as cool as steam locomotives, right? And there aren't a lot of really good old model, HO scale model fire engines around. So when we moved up here, it kind of fell way to the back burner. Uh, but a couple of years ago, my wife bought me a fire engine, a real one. And it turns out that old fire engines are actually not that expensive. 
the problem is, is you need a place to keep them. Well, I have an entire, a barn we call the tractor barn because it was made for holding farm implements. For those of you paying and, attention at home, there have been seven barns mentioned at this point. <laughs> yes, seven barns. So there's at least enough room for a fire engine. Yeah. And you, you got to understand it's a 30 foot pumper. It's a, it's a Van Pelt pumper. It's got a 750 gallon tank. It, it weighs 15 tons. And oh just the day before yesterday, I was taking people for rides in it. By the way, you, you stop it and you shift gears and the prime mover, which is a Caterpillar diesel, now powers the Hayes pump and it'll generate like 600 PSI. So what, what we were doing, it was really hot on Monday and I had a bunch of people over. So we were going out for rides on it. And then we, I park it in the middle of a field and there's a, there's a two and a half inch monitor on the top and, uh, and it'll shoot at a hundred PSI. That's all I put through it. Cause it's an old machine. It's 1978. And, um, but at a hundred PSI, It'll shoot water 250 feet and it'll empty that tank in three minutes. <laughs> it's like a massive quantity of water comes out right now. <laughs> it's very exciting. That is very exciting. <laughs> that is not the exciting thing I thought I would hear about today. <laughs> so, so you're basic, you're terraforming Petaluma. <laughs> I, well, it was, um, yeah, it's, I mean, yeah, it's it's what I do. Is I I I do. I I cut into the dirt and I sculpt things and it's very much like what I used to do. I I actually I think it would be really interesting to build a real a, a railroad of the scale that you could ride on. I agree. But, oh yeah. But you see this is the thing is I'm a practical guy. You might not think I'm a practical guy when I talk about things like model railroads and fire engines. But I, I nailed you as a practical guy when you mentioned you had a fire engine. Yes. Well, in theory, it's we can use it for firefighting. <laughs> it's, in um, a pinch. My, uh, my neighbors are all firemen. and uh, There you go. And so they help me out. You know, and I go, hey, Mark, Mark, I, I burst a hose. Can you help me out? And he so brings wait, it all. Wait a minute. So wait a minute. So your neighbors are all firemen. Yeah. And here comes City Boy. And the first thing City Boy does is he buys a fire engine. This is like the what? weirdest episode of Green Acres. I, it, it's, I, I bought the fire engine from my neighbor. Oh, okay. So, gotcha. So wait a minute. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. What? So. This, you should come by the ranch. We'll go for uh, a ride oh, the fire engine. I yeah. think we may be going to the ranch straight oh, yeah. from here. <laughs> <laughs> so your neighbor's a fireman and he sold you a fire engine. Did you ask him where the fire engine came from? Like I said, it's a, it's a dairying valley, but, but the dairy business is, is long gone. But the old dairy farmers still keep up the traditions. They still have cows grazing. They sell them for, they, they have some dairy replacements, mostly the beef cows. They do it because they like to keep their hand in. and um, In the cow. And they, and they do that too. Yeah. And, and branding, it means something completely different out there. Uh, <laughs> it's real. So, so my neighbors are, there's a family, there's three generations who live there of this old Italian family and, and Ron, the patriarch of the family, he was a dairyman for his entire life. He's now nearing 80 and the, this, the, the, he's, he's the volunteer fire department chief. And he just retired actually like a month ago and they want to honor him. They want to throw a dinner and give him a trophy and all that stuff. And he goes, eh, tell him to mail it to me. 
He, he's a he's a classic dairy farmer. He's never taken a vacation in this classic life. dairy farmer. <laughs> These guys, all they do is work. That's all they do is work. Every morning, so he's he, he what he does now because he doesn't dairy anymore. They shut the family dairy down twenty years ago. So he drives a supply truck and he goes to the outer valleys and sells dairy supplies to his buddies, the other dairy farmers. And uh, so every morning, 7.30, like you can set your watch to it. There goes Ron driving his truck out. So my wife was talking with him and was expressing concern a couple of summers ago about the fire danger out there. And he looked at her and he said, well, why don't you get a fire truck? And she said, well, how can I do that? And he said, Monday morning. (laughs) And Monday morning, there were two big fire trucks parked in our front yard. And he basically said, do you want either one of these? And because, see, the fire department got a federal grant. Keep in mind, it's in 1978 and they had it since 1978. So it's fully amortized, absolutely in perfect showroom condition. And it starts, you turn that key and it goes, starts right up. And, uh, and uh, so with the federal money, they bought two brand new fire engines and then they took this beautiful old Van Pelt and they parked it in the bed. They, they took all the, the hatchets and ladders and stuff off of it. You got no ladders? No, I. That's a project. I'm slowly adding right. stuff back to it. And the, in fact, they took the the nozzle off the monitor, and I got a replacement on eBay. But it's it was a um, it has a beautiful patina. It's this ancient thing. It came off a New York City Harbor fireboat. Oh, oh shit! Cool. Nice. Wow. Yeah. I mean, you could you could not only knock somebody over with this thing, but you could you could knock a building over with it. Good lord. <laughs> Yeah. Um, so so you woke up one morning, you have two fire trucks in your front yard. Yeah, and Sue picked one. <laughs> how do you go how I've never done this before. How do you go about it's deciding that was Monday which fire That's truck amazing. is right for you? Well, one a was question. a gasoline powered and the other was diesel and I picked the diesel even though the the gasoline power was actually more so cool, appropriately sized. <laughs> But this thing, I've got other pictures of it, but I, it'll take me a while to find them. We're, we're uh, Alan's currently passing his phone around. This is radio, by the way. So yep. I like to describe the photos. Uh, there's a photo of, as, as described, a fire engine in the middle of a field shooting a giant set of spout. Yeah. That's a, that's it's like a, a geyser. A geyser. A geyser of it's water. It's a nozzle. It's a bronze nozzle. That's about a foot long, about 14 inches long. And at the end of it, the hole in the end of it is seven eighths of an inch. Goodness and gracious. at the entrance, it's two and a half inches. And about there three feet below it is a water pump, a hail water pump. They make all the pumps for all the fire engines in the country. And it is connected. What you do is you is it's got a 400 horsepower diesel motor that drives this thing around. And what you do is you shift it into neutral and you pull a pneumatic clutch and it uncouples the Caterpillar diesel engine from the engine and connects it to the hail pump. (laughs) So you got 400 horsepower running a water pump. Holy shit. Yeah. That's a hell of a shift. (laughs) Yeah, it is. It's, it's exciting. If you do it wrong, let me tell you. (laughs) (laughs) That clutch really pops. It does. I'm, I'm kind of surprised you're not dead. <laughs> I mean, you're playing with dynamite. 
You're playing, I mean, you're playing with, with high pressure hydraulics. You have all manner of animal walking around. Wait, I want to know more about that. What animals do you have on the ranch besides the less chickens? Well, we have sheep. And uh, we don't have a lot of sheep because uh, the sheep are not really the main object of what we do. They're kind of a tool in our land restoration project. How so? We, I, you know, I sort of fell in with a bad crowd when I moved to the country. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Here comes the meth story, by the way. Oh, no. Fantastic. The what? The meth story. Was there Everyone meth? in the country grows meth. No, no, we don't grow meth. Although, From the meth tree? When yeah, I, grows meth, exactly. When, <laughs> when I built out my, my workshop, I took one of the old barns and, and made it really luxurious inside. I mean, that's a, that's a, that's a red flag to everybody in the county that I'm growing <laughs> dope. And oh, so yeah. I made a point of bringing all the neighbors in to see that I was, I was not smart enough to grow pot. They care if you grow pot out there? They don't care. No. I don't think so. I don't know. I don't grow pot. Um, I think the neighbors, I want to be friends with the neighbors. They probably wouldn't hang with me if, um, if I grew pot and, and I want them to hang with me. I want to be their buddy. They have fire trucks, but they all have fire trucks. This is the thing (laughs) about these guys in the country. Fire truck demolition derby in Petaluma. (laughs) So the last dairyman in the San Antonio Valley is Joe Tugnaldo. And he's in his 80s. He quit daring a year ago. And he waves to everybody who goes by. And uh, every year, uh, Petaluma has the butter and eggs parade. And last year, for the first time, he got out the 1941 vintage fire engine wow. from the San Antonio Volunteer Fire Department, engine number one, that they bought used from somebody else. And uh, got it going again and drove it down Main Street in Petaluma in the parade. Is this one of those events where people make butter sculptures? No. Because <laughs> no. that's like one of my favorite art forms in the world. Wait, I told you about that, right? The one have, I was like, do you have a butter sculpture story? Yeah. Please. When I was like 10, I was the blue ribbon first place Orange County butter sculptor. What? Really? In the youth division. I didn't know <laughs> this. Shit. I made Mickey Mouse. Holy shit. This huh? is illuminating. I want to hear more about this. I mean, that's pretty much it. I just got a really greasy ribbon. Um, But I'm really excited to go to Minnesota State Fair and see like the really, really good butter sculptures. The major leagues. So you made a Mickey Mouse out of butter? Well, I think it was butter flavored Crisco. Oh, that's wrong. Yeah, it was real gross. I can't believe it's not Mickey. (laughs) (laughs) His ears are drooping. I can't believe she didn't get sued. It was Mikey, the... The rat. I don't sure. Know. Yeah. Do you know any? Uh, do you know any good Disney jokes? Oh, I feel like we need to get Erica back in here. Yeah, I uh, haven't even considered that as a genre. Wait, was that? Is that a setup? Is there a Disney joke Wait. coming? I don't know. <laughs> Everybody knows Disney jokes. Come on. Fast. Okay, so I need to know more about the barns. Barn one, fire truck. Barn two, very luxurious workshop. What are uh, three yeah, through okay. five? Okay, the workshop barn is the luxurious workshop. Uh, the tractor barn is, 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 it has tractors and equipment and also a fire engine. It's, it's big enough for a lot of stuff. Uh, it's about, it's about 5,000 square feet. Oh my God. That's the tractor barn. Mercy. Then there's, then there's Katie's barn named after our first farmer, which is actually, nobody knows what it was used for. It's one of the older barns and we can't figure out what it was used for. It's just a little barn. And, um, 
somebody said it was the kid's barn, but I don't believe that. Keep the kids in it, you know. Um, but uh, that's actually still used for ag. Okay, then there's the tall barn, which is an old hay barn, a double-walled hay barn. And it's the oldest, I believe it's the oldest structure on the property, which means that it was built sometime in the 1870s. The house I know was built in 1879, and I believe the barn is older. So that's four. Then there's the party barn, which is the old bull barn. It's a three-walled barn, and and I have no idea what we do with it, except the name might give it away. And then there's wait, what's a three-walled barn? Well, it's it had uh, like a pipe gates in the front, and it had three wooden walls. So, oh, okay, and we okay, took the pipe gates it. down. So now it's 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 a beautiful shady structure to to eat in, drink in, and got it, and and party in. And then there's the pavilion, which actually was a recreational vehicle shed that we kind of repurposed. Then there was the dairy barn, and the dairy barn is where they actually milk the cows. And so it's built out of concrete cinder block and has concreted inside walls because it has to be, they have to be able to clean it. I mean, food mm-hmm. safe clean. Right. And uh, that's actually just being used for storage now, which we have a lot of because there's a lot of crap on a ranch, let me tell you. Quite I mean, valuable merchandise. Quite a little trains. And well, the trains would, I originally thought the trains would go in one of the sh- outer sheds of the workshop barn because the workshop barn was the biggest barn on the property and it was 11,000 square feet under roof. Oh, that's big. And so what I did is I converted this. It didn't have any walls. I'm just thinking like that's over 10 times the size of my apartment and I have a big San Francisco apartment. Yeah. It's yeah. a barn. So so much space. But there were no walls. So what we did is we walled in the inner the workshop barn has a central gable and two enormous sheds. And so what we did is we we studded in the walls of the central gable and insulated it and 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 conditioned it. And that's about 4,500 square feet. And that's my workshop. And I had always intended on using one of those sheds for model railroads. But after I'd been there for a while and I got a good look at it, I realized that that wouldn't work. I mean, the, the shed was the cheesy shed roof and it, there's, it could barely hold up a sheet of corrugated steel and there was no way I was going to build a model railroad out there and I would have to essentially build a building from scratch. So plan B, I realized that what I could do is because I had 20 foot ceilings inside the main barn, I could put in a second floor and that would work. And so that's been the stopgap plan is to put in a second floor. And then I would have about something in the neighborhood of 2,200 square feet to use for a model railroad, which would be about half what I had originally planned, but still plenty for a lifetime project. But, you know, at this point, the chances of that ever coming to fruition are pretty slim because what are you going to do, you know? Build a model railroad. It would be nice, but, I, you know, I have too much stuff going on. So you're doing all this out in Petaluma, and you're still running this this thing down here. Well, there are a lot of really intelligent, competent people who are running Cooper the design company and, and, uh, they don't need me. I'm very happy to see them taking it beyond where I could go. I'm a, I'm a starter. 
I'm really good at starting. And after 25 years, <laughs> the last thing they need is, is a shit disturber to come in and, and, and kick their sandcastles apart. But you're still, I, I, I know some of those people, they are very intelligent people, but you're still, you, I mean, you still loom over it. You're loom? Still, <laughs> loom? I like to think I bask in the reflected like, glory. <laughs> like a beneficent. A be, ben, beneficent? Beneficent. What's wrong with me? Beneficent. Like beneficent. a beneficent. Be, like benevolent? Beneficent. You're still there. <laughs> I want to at least talk a little bit about design. So that I want I want to make sure that we don't lose our grant. Oh. Right. Yeah. You have a grant? No. No. <laughs> we're in a we're from, in a, from who? We're, yeah. We're if we if we had a grant of any kind, we would not be uh in a tiny room literally under the sidewalk. Does Roman Mars have a grant? Oh yeah. Oh, oh so hell many yes. grants. So many. No, we're Roman Mars. Grant Street, you know, does that count? Uh detect a note of jealousy in your voices not, when you say, Oh hell yeah, Mars he's got grants. Symphony. Symphony of jealousy. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Symphony of Jealousy is pretty good. Oh, Roman is a very good guy. Yes. So I know where you're going with this. Is you want to know what the hell's going on in the world of design? There we I go. Have my fingerprints on. Let's go. Let's go. What's going on? You've been doing design for a very long time. Yeah. And and, and you have left a stamp on the industry, and you're still still leaving that stamp on the industry, which is why you're here. Why why I like talking to you, and why I like you know. Because every time we talk, I, I get another little tidbit of, you know, how things are and how things used to be and how things are changing and, you know, whether things are getting better or whether things are getting worse. The, the you know, Jerry Weinberg said, when you solve your number one problem, your number two problem gets a promotion. And so for many years, the number one problem was insinuating the notion of design into the development process and mission accomplished. You know, we, we solved that number one problem and now we find that we have another, a new number one problem. So what's our new number one problem? The new number one problem is that while we were fighting for our seat at the table, the table became enormous, world-girdling, and incredibly important and dominant in, in every aspect of our world. And what happens when you create something powerful is unscrupulous people look at that powerful thing and they say, hey, I could do something with that. I mean, as a student of the Industrial Revolution, you know, you, you, you think of those guys in the, in the teens and the 20s inventing the automobile and the washing machine and the thresher and the reaper. And there's some other guy sitting there and saying, hey, I can invent the tank. Mm -hmm. So it's what I call our Oppenheimer moment. So Robert Oppenheimer was the smartest guy in the country. And when President Roosevelt tasked him with inventing the atomic bomb and he was given the highest priority task in the country, he was given unlimited resources over men, women, and citizens and material. He could have anything he wanted, do whatever he felt was necessary, build the atomic bomb, 
to win World War II. And he did. He, he, his team, the Manhattan Project, they created the atomic bomb. And, and all this time they were struggling to build it. There was, his problem was building this bomb and they weren't actually sure it was going to work. It was completely based on theory. And when it finally ignited, it was a shock to the system. It was overwhelming even for those guys who'd built it. And at that moment, Oppenheimer looked at this bomb going off and he went, oh, shit. Is this really what I want to do with my gift? And I believe that, and that's what I call the Oppenheimer moment. And I believe that here we are, we are technologists and we are all these empathetic designers and we've been implementing all this great social media stuff. And we've been improving the, the lives of people around the world with our great inventions and designs and stuff. And all of a sudden we look at Uber and we look at Twitter, you know, Uber is finessing people into bankruptcy and, and, and Facebook has been a vehicle for subverting our political system. And Twitter has been a platform for Despots. Thank you. And, um, and I'm, I believe me, I'm not singling out Twitter and Facebook and Uber. I think they're just merely representative. I mean, look at Amazon. Amazon is the greatest monopoly that is destroying worlds or occupying worlds. The thing is, is, is I love Amazon more than anything. And I spend two thirds of my money through Amazon and I've got Amazon boxes showing up at my doorstep every day. So I love Amazon. But the fact is, is that at a certain point, there will be no other retail businesses left. And at that point, our ethical position in the world of commerce will be entirely dependent on the whims of a single man. This is an Oppenheimer moment for the technology industry. And the leaders of the technology industry have long been thought to be the engineers, but the builders are not the leaders. The architects are the leaders and we're the architects. We are the designers and we determine what gets built. And what's going on right now is some of us are looking at it, at what's going on in the, in the tech world and we're going, oh shit. And some are not. But what we have to do is we have to, we have to understand that Nobody else is going to do anything. There are plenty of people out there who look at the power of the technology and they say, you know, all I have to do is use the power of Facebook and I can disrupt an entire presidential election in the United States. And, and they kind of go, and that would be beneficial to me. Therefore, I'm going to do it because it's, it's not illegal. And so what we're finding is that, and you can see this in Washington, D.C., is that the two most interesting characters in the last presidential election basically bypassed the conventional conduits of power in Washington. And they, those two being Sanders and Trump. And they uh, made their appeals directly through social media. They went directly to the citizenry. And in the wake of that, or as the cause of that, it's hard to disentangle those things. What we're finding is that order, civility, and coherence and usefulness and effectiveness of the United States government isn't in fact dependent on laws and isn't in fact dependent on the founding fathers' 
checks and balances and the tripartite government and all that stuff. Instead, it's founded on civility and common cause and convention. And when somebody comes in and says, it's in my best interest to subvert the convention and I no longer have common cause, I want what's mine, not what's everybody's. Then it turns out that you can, you can destroy the effectiveness of the government. All of that is done through the tool of what we call technology, through software, through AI, through the internet, social networking, and it's all built by us. It's all designed by us. And when we make stuff really easy to use, what we're doing is we're empowering despots. And so what we need to do is we need to say, how do we not do that? How do we recognize when we're in a dilemma? How do we dig our way out of it? And believe me, I do not know the answer. I, I don't. I, this is a freaking wicked problem. But it's, we were warned. Oh, yeah. There, there were people out there telling us this was going on. We are the species that has to piss on the electric fence. We have to touch <laughs> the wet paint. We, we have to do it. And so what we have to do is we have to set off the atomic bomb in order to discover that that's probably a bad thing to have atomic bombs. Are we still waiting for the atomic bomb? Well, I think it's in the process of exploding about now. I think when Delaware hits us, mm-hmm. that's that's one of the one it'll, of the shockwaves. It'll be a good good sign and difficult to miss. Yeah, yeah. And I'm not the only guy. Believe me, there are lots of people in our industry who are go, who are having the same kind of oh shit Oppenheimer moment, and they're realizing that that design is not politically agnostic, and And Mike, you are one of the chief leaders in this group of conscientious people. Does what he can. I try. Well, and that's the thing. The the main thing that we can do is we can start the dialogue. Here's what scares me. What scares you? The amount of people who argue that this is not our responsibility. This is not within our definition of of what design is the amount of people who are arguing that I'm, I'm, they're not young. They're not inexperienced. They are people who have been doing this a long time, just as much as they are people who are just starting out. There are people, they are people who have done very well as much as they're people who are just starting out. They're the people who got us here. And they're also the people who are going to maybe help fix this. Or, or coming up, it's pervasive. I think of design as, I guess some people would label it as, as, as an activist endeavor, but I think there was a responsibility in what we do. A few years ago, I, I learned a new word. It's all the rage these days, and, and, I, and I realize it's, it's a word that describes me. I'm a maker. That's what I do. I used to I mean, I've always made stuff and I built software for many years. And as a designer, I, I've, I've never really considered myself a designer as much as I've considered myself a maker of design tools. Uh-huh. That's kind of how I think of it. All right. And, um, and now, you know, on the ranch, I'm, I'm also a maker. I'm trying to, 
I'm, I'm really kind of an enabler, but, but it's, it's making. And, and for my hobby, you know, I go in my wood shop or my metal shop and I make crap. Damn, you have and a metal shop up there too. I've got a full <laughs> machine shop and sheet metal shop, a welding. You got a fabrication. guest room? Yeah. Damn, it's, this sounds good. It's pretty, it's pretty ace. Let me tell you. The main goal of building it is to make people like you drool. I'm drooling. Yeah, there you go. See? If you take Mike Winning. there, he will come back with fewer fingers. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> but um, an Iron Man suit, motherfucker. <laughs> well, <laughs> with a stadium buddy inside. So mm. I'm practical. So here's the thing is makers have to be responsible for what they make and what other people like them make. I agree. I absolutely 100% agree. Well, then there you go. I mean, we have no argument here. No. We're on the same side. When you talk about all the people who are like arguing that it's not their responsibility, like that seems not surprising to me. Like when you look at even voter turnout where it's like, oh, my vote doesn't matter. Like you can't, you know, people just don't give a fuck sometimes. And it's, it's hard to make them care. Like it's probably those same people who didn't bother to vote because they didn't like either candidate. Right. You're, you're absolutely right. You know, like a good designer, I'm trying to, trying to look at that problem and, and trying to crack that nut open. Why? Why? I mean, it's easy to dismiss all of those people. And, you know, part of me really wants to, but we're not going to solve that problem unless we figure out why, why people feel disenfranchised, why they don't vote. In some of those cases, it might maybe that they just don't care, but I don't think that's all of them. And, and yeah. I doubt that the, that's the majority. And I don't know the answer to that either. And part of what I'm arguing for here, I mean, not with any of you, is that we've got some really smart people and we've got uh, some amazing resources at our disposal. And we claim to be problem solvers. This is a hell of a good problem to try to figure out. It's a worthy challenge. And I, by myself, and Alan by himself, cannot solve this problem. We don't know. Here's what I learned a long time ago. It's, it, it's a parallel to one of the lessons I've learned on the ranch that goes like this. Not all the little baby lambs survive. You have to leave them behind, even though they're cute and lovable. And a, a, a parallel to that from the world of industry is let the dinosaurs die. I don't think that our job here is to convince people. I think that our job here is to change stuff. I'm satisfied that I know what needs to change. I'm also, I have enough self-doubt to know I'm, I'm probably not right in entirely, but I'm right enough. And that I would like to see a representative democracy put back into place. I would like to see inequality vanquished. So I want to move in that direction. And I really, frankly, don't care if there's consensus. I'm looking for effectiveness, not agreement. Oh, I'm, I'm fine with leaving some blood on the table. So why do you care about convincing people? Because I want to know how they got here. I don't care about convincing people. I, I, I want to figure out how they've made these decisions. Because we're going to get here. We're going to be here again. 
Well, I want to solve true. <laughs> I want to solve this problem so that we can avoid it next time. Well, we're going to solve the problem. You know, when the Earth is 140 degrees and the human race is dead, that will solve the problem. That's the Earth saying, "Fuck you! I got this." I know, I know, and and it will do just fine. The I mean, we're not destroying the Earth. <laughs> we're we're destroying the habitat of humans that right. we're doing. But again, I I don't think you can do that. I think the human animal is designed to live in a pre-industrial world, in a pre-agricultural world. And that's the mental equipment that we bring to the job. I think that it's going to take, I don't know, something I've never seen in the history of the human race to allow humans to have power tools and not start thinking about how to screw up their neighbors and take their shit, which is basically what we're doing. That's what we do. Yeah. I mean, the minute that we're handed a tool, there, there's like two options on the table. Either can I hit someone with this or can I stick my dick in it? <laughs> yeah. Or, or put it in my mouth. I or, would say yeah. is a third, a viable third. That's a good third. Okay. Let's go with that. Hey, last time we talked, you used a phrase which has stuck with me. Good. Uh, Good. <laughs> Progress. Uh-oh. Now, what was the phrase? Yeah, that's a good question. <laughs> capable of learning. You said you wanted to be a good ancestor. Remember that? Yes. Tell us about that. I had a feeling I, we were getting there. I, I don't know where I found that phrase. I wish I could claim, Just claim credit it. for it. Uh, yeah, I thought it up totally myself. Nice. No help from anybody else, like everything else in this world. No, I, no, I, I'm sure I took it from somebody. But it's a it's a brilliant concept because I was having a discussion the other night with this guy, and we were talking about sustainability. And he goes, "Well, how do you scale it?" And I said, "Well, that's the wrong question to ask." <laughs> and because you don't want to ask how you can scale it or how you make make money off it, you want to ask the question of, "Will this make me a good ancestor?" Namely, is this good for my children and their children and their children? That's the question you have to ask. Good question. The rubric to ask going forward about everything you do is, does this make me a good ancestor? As a kind of a footnote to that, I am going to be uh, teaching a class at University of California at Berkeley this fall semester. This is the first time I've ever taught a class at a university. Wow. It's kind of, uh, kind of a scary experiment for me. And the class is uh, through the Jacobs Innovation Lab. It's an accredited course, and it's going to be called Thinking Like a Good Ancestor. And the subtitle is Finding Meaning in the Technology We Build. I have a a partner in crime, a a young man named uh, Renato Verdugo, who's from, uh, well, he lives in New York. He's a Chilean from birth, and uh, he's a young, really bright guy. He works for YouTube and he's very highly educated. I'm very uneducated. And uh, so this is really interesting coming together, but we both are resonating on this notion of how to be a good ancestor. And what we want to do is work with some smart young people and see if they can figure this out. And, and again, we don't know the answers, but I mean, I remember back in the early days of interaction design, I didn't know how to do it. I didn't even know what to do, but I knew that what we were doing wasn't right. And there had to be a way to break this down. And, you know, you go in and you, you hammer on it for a while and you begin to see patterns and you begin to see what works and what doesn't. 
And I think that that's something that we can do here. What we find is that everything we do is inside a framework. Human beings don't like to think the hard way that much. We like to think easy. And so framework is often just a a shortcut. It's stuff that I've thought about, figured out, and now I've put it on the shelf. I don't have to think about it anymore. But what that means is it's a is it's a breeding ground for assumptions, for unquestioned assumptions. Okay? <laughs> this, is, this is parallel to programming. Well, if sure. If your library has a bug, that abstraction does not work anymore. Yes. And, 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 it's, and it, it's not a coincidence that this problem is, is caused by and will be solved by, if it's solved at all, by programmers. And I consider interaction designers to be programmers wearing a funny suit. <laughs> They're sort of the furries of the programming world. <laughs> and we're back. But, Steph, you're uh, getting the title? Yep, I'm writing down the title on my Star Wars post-it. That's good. So, um, hey, my my phone is going crazy here. I think this. I may have to... Okay, no, they're just talking about... The kids, the, the kids call it going off, by the way. Phone's going off, right? Kids? Blowing up. Uh, I, Blowing up. You know, I'm... You know, I'm 78. You my, are. In, yeah, in my soul. You are. I got a new phone and my little phone got lost in my pocket and, and I never felt it's it. still vibrate. down there? And my <laughs> wife goes, I could never get in touch with you. And I got this iPhone 7 Plus. It's the size of a small a dog. And I can feel it vibrate in my pocket. It's, a, it's, it's like, whoa. Size of the iceberg that's making its way to It's it. the size of Delaware. Yeah. yeah. So there's assumptions that are no longer valid and yet we still construct our world around them. And this is one of the great wells of understanding of how we're going wrong in our ethical world in the, in the, in the technology world is, is we have to become aware of our assumptions. We have to constantly be examining our frameworks and saying, where are the obsolete assumptions in them? And the other one is a concept that has been best articulated by the permaculture. I, I, it's not a science, it's an art, it's a craft maybe, is permaculture is a way of uh, growing things or working in the growing world in a sustainable and natural way. It's very broad, it's very complex because nature is very broad and complex and it's really hard to put your finger on what permaculture is and nail it down. But one of the core concepts in permaculture is the idea that in an ecosystem, there's no such thing as something outside of the ecosystem. Mm -hmm. Everything's in the ecosystem. And what that means is the idea that there's a big green truck that comes to my ranch every Monday morning and takes my trash away is not a valid concept because the problem is there's no such thing as a way because in an ecosystem, there's no way. So what it does is it takes it down to a, a big dump by the Petaluma river and it piles it there and plows it back and forth. And then they cover it with a thin layer of dirt and it's out of sight, out of mind, all that stuff, but it's not really a way. This is the other problem is that if you're Uber, you can make a lot of money by putting the cost of what you're doing on other people. I mean, this is what Walmart does. They make all that money because 
they pay their people so little that they uh, they all have to be on food stamps and, you know, when they get sick, they go to the emergency room, that kind of thing. They're making money by pushing their real costs away, by making them externalities. In a permaculture way of looking at things, there is no externality. And this is a an indicator of how you're creating a toxic world. How do you know when you're looking at, you know, when your boss says, hey, I want this screen by Wednesday, what you have to do is you have to say, where are the externalities here? Where am I pushing something off my plate and falling on somebody else's plate? Okay, that is a, a, the smell of an ethical violation. Mm-hmm. That is a, a, a red flag that something's not right here. There's an answer here. I said, I don't know how to solve this problem. I don't know what the answers are. But I totally believe this is a crackable, solvable problem. And there's a third thing that is, is in here. <laughs> and and it's, it's part of the problem and part of the solution. I'm, I'm not sure yet what it means, but I know it's a powerful oper- operative force. And that's time. You know, is that when a bomb goes off, it goes off in a split second. When Delaware comes marching into the Northern Hemisphere, it could take decades. And humans are really good at responding to those instantaneous events, and we're, we're not very good at responding to those longer ones. So time is, a, is an issue that we need to be aware of. A 60-second explosion is as destructive as a 600-year explosion. Yeah. But yeah. we're not looking for the latter. Humans don't see that. Yeah. I mean, the thing about geological time, you know, that the scientists talk about is you look at the, the mountain. And what you don't realize is that the mountains don't actually wear down one stone at a time. They actually explode like Mount St. Helens. It's just that you only see them do that every 60,000 years. So it actually really is cataclysmic. We just don't get to see it. I mean, we live in interesting times because we're actually seeing Antarctica break, Antarctica right. break up. You know, we're seeing Greenland's ice sheet melt. And hell, we're going to see Greenland's ice sheet on, uh, on San Francisco, on, on Russian Hill. <laughs> Yeah. Well, yeah. It's just going to, you know, it's going to be displaced a little bit. Yeah. I mean, my ranch is at 150 foot elevation and that's, that's, that, I'll be okay for the next 50 years. Maybe. After that, I don't know. The end, the uh, descendants of your sheep need to be good swimmers. Yeah. 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 The famous swimming sheep of Monkey mm-hmm. Ranch. Well, this seems like a good hopeful note to end on. <laughs> It sure does. I don't know. I I think I think that actually is nice. There's a that's a better framing to the issue than I think that we had before we came. Very good framing. Thank you for coming on the show, Alan. It's my pleasure. I really appreciate your your outspoken activism, Mike. Thank you so much. I appreciate everything that you've done for our community and our industry. Well, it's um believe me, it was an accident. Oh, <laughs> I'm willing to, I'm willing to accept that it was a fortunate accident. <laughs> that much at least. Yeah.
Steph, Liam. Yep. Yes. Do you have anything you want to add here? Okay. So I have one question just to bring it back together is Ooh. at the beginning, we talked about kicking down edifices. Are there any we should be building up? Oh, nice. Ooh, twist. Yes. When I look at the degradation of our society, being the systems guy that I am, I look for the common thread. I look for the pattern. And the pattern that has become very clear to me is we have all kinds of nasty problems, but at the core of each one is somebody coming along and subverting it because they have enough money to subvert either people or systems. So what I realize is that the common thread, the root of our social ills is gross economic inequality because humans can be bought and systems can be suborned. The thing is, is that the United States government hasn't been suborned because nobody has ever been in a position to afford to suborn it until now. Mm -hmm. Okay. The thing is, is that you can't make this security guys know this, that you can't make a system secure. You know, it's like you can't make a program free of bugs. All you can do is strike outside of it. Okay. So if we can't create a, let's say a federal government that can protect itself because it can't protect itself against people who have so much money that they can buy all of the congressmen. Mm -hmm. So what it means is that you have to make it so that there aren't people out there who have that much money. Okay. Now I've been engaged in the tech world for the last 40 years. And I had hopes of being a billionaire myself. Actually I didn't. I had hopes of being a millionaire, but I have contributed to the creation of millionaires and billionaires. And now I realize that that was not good for our society by creating people who have billions of dollars. What they can do is um, they can purchase justice or lack thereof and they can suborn entire systems. They can, they can bribe them and buy them and subvert them. And people talk about, say, Scandinavian countries like Denmark, and they talk about how high the taxes are. Well, the taxes are actually not that high compared to the taxes that I pay. And what you get for them is worth immensely more than what I get from my taxes and if you take the, all the fees and the costs of the things that I have to buy that my taxes are not buying, it's far less than what my son who lives in Denmark gets. Hmm. Okay. He gets a lot more for his taxes and on, on the surface, his tax rate is higher. But if you add up all the things I pay for like healthcare and transportation, I actually pay more and I actually get a much lower quality. There's a delightful TED talk on where the places in the world to become a, a, a millionaire. This European guy did the study. And it turns out that the best societies to create wealth in are the ones that have high taxes because they have an educated and peaceful populace. You know, so all of the tropes of the right wing in America about lower taxes to create more jobs and create more business is bullshit, basically. Jeff Bezos is and Bill Gates and Mark Zuckerberg, these guys, uh, they have too much money. 
They simply have too much money. And these are our tech guys and they're decent guys. But then you look at the Koch brothers and a bunch of other pathological billionaires and it is not okay that they have that much money. I don't begrudge business people wealth. You know, I think of a business person as a lucky business person and makes 20 or $30 million. Fine. I think that's fine. Or 40 or 50 or a hundred million dollars. I think that's fine because you can't suborn a government with a hundred million dollars, but you can suborn a government with 5 billion. Okay. And so I don't think it should be, I don't believe that our society should allow people to get that kind of money. And I don't believe that companies like Apple, which is a beloved company with beloved products and a beloved culture should be able to have hundreds of billions of dollars held offshore untaxed. So the edifices I think we need to build is an edifice of taxation to make sure that people who decide business is just a game and money is a way to keep score. Fine. I would like to take them at their word (laughs) and give them the score and then distribute the money to the rest of us. (laughs) You won. Give this your money. I like that. That's a good answer. I don't, I don't even want their money. I just want it pumped back in a society. Well, that's what I mean. Yeah. And, and I thought so. Yeah. As uh, the former mayor of Bogota, Colombia said, an advanced society is not one where the poor people have cars, but where the rich people ride public transportation. Amen. Mm -hmm. And so I want public transportation. I mean, I spend all my time on the road in gridlock because, because uh, California, United States is a, is a monoculture of transportation. Yep. And monocultures are brittle and dangerous and not very effective. Okay, I could go on for hours. You guys ask good <laughs> questions. Tough questions. Thank you, Steph. <laughs> of course. All right. So uh, that's, Crap. let's make mistakes. That's game. Yeah. Thank, Thank you so you, much Alan. for joining us. Yeah. Yeah, it's been a Thanks pleasure. Thanks for having me. This, this has been, been lovely. Anytime. And uh, we will be back shortly. Yep. Yeah, soon. At some point. Soon. Yeah, we're going to talk Let's about not commit it. to anything. Well, <laughs> great. Great. <laughs> Super duper. All right. Bye, everybody. Bye. 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 Roman Mars is not a real person. He's what happens when you put all of the Yola Tango records, play them all at the same time, and then hear them backwards. That's oh. how you make a Roman Mars. Boy, this is getting weird. Hello. So you can make one at home? Is there like an instructable on making your own Roman Mars? Make your own Roman Mars. Okay. Fantastic news. <laughs> Alan's microphone works. <laughs> I'm Roman Mars. I'm tripping balls. <laughs> this is like the weirdest little <laughs> sweat lodge. And just like <laughs> weird things happen in here. <laughs>